6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. In school, you probably had an opportunity to represent an atom with what the classical model is a nucleus with an electron going around it. That, of course, is not the scale. Okay, we've got a nucleus in the center. We have an electron going around it. Now, the point is not to scale. Let's assume you wanted to make, we'll take hydrogen, one, you know, it's the simplest atom, and we're going to make a scale model of that. We're going to make, by the way, the atom itself is about 10 to the minus 8 centimeters in size. The nucleus is 10 to the minus 13th. It's obviously a lot smaller than the atom itself, right? By a significant factor, okay? In fact, it's a factor of 10 to the fifth. Because 10 to the minus 8 divided by 10 to the minus 13 turns out to be about 10 to the 100,000 difference. What does that mean? Let's assume I'm going to make a model of this atom, and I'll use a golf ball as the nucleus. Just to pick a, a model here, okay? We're going to build a model of this thing. Where do we put the electron? Three miles away. Can you visualize that? It's hard to visualize. Golf ball and the electron is three miles away in a scale. You with me? It's, it's 100,000 times bigger than the size of the nucleus. Let's explore what that means for a minute. That's linearly. That's a linear measure. To deal with area, like let's assume we're doing this on a football field or something, you have to square that. Area is square feet, right? So that's 10 to the 5th times 10 to the 5th, which is 10 to the 10th. Okay. But I want to deal volumetrically, three-dimensionally, right? Well, I have to cube that. So it's 10 to the fifth cubed. It's cubic feet or whatever, right? That's 10 to the 15th. Now, the nucleus has a relationship to the volume of the atom that's one part in 10 to the 15th, right? What does that mean? That's the same relationship that one second has to 30 million years. You and I can't imagine that many years. We can represent it, but we can't grasp 30 million, you know, one second to 30, that's quite a difference, okay? Now, what does that mean? I have a podium up here, and, and it seems solid enough to you and me, right? But let's assume you said, Chuck, I don't think there's anything there at all. I think that's really not, that's empty space. But some of you might say, I don't see, it's, there's nothing there, not really. Do you realize that conjecture number two is more descriptive of this podium than the fact that it's solid? If you say there's nothing here, you're more correct to the ratio of one second to 30 million years. See what I'm getting at? So, this physical universe that we experience turns out to be an illusion. It's a, a, an electronic simulation. 
we are in a very elaborate video game, so to speak. Okay? Now, let's talk about these indivisible units. You know, if I take a piece of string of some given length, I obviously can cut it in half, right? No problem so far. And I can take whatever's left over and I cut it, I can cut it in half, right? And you would think that I could do that indefinitely. Maybe it gets so small I couldn't do it practically, but I can at least imagine, however small it gets, cutting it in half and throwing half away and taking what's left and cutting it in half again. You with me? So I can go ahead and do that. But it turns out, strangely enough, when I get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, I can't divide it anymore. Because if I try, it loses a property called locality. It suddenly becomes everywhere at once. Does that sound like double talk? Pretty weird, right? Okay. It loses locality. And there is a thing called the Planck length. It's 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. There's a length of time, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, that you can't get smaller than that. You're going to have zero or that. In other words, we've discovered that everything, length, mass, energy, time, you name it, is made up of units that can't be divided. One way to express that, it's digital, not analog. It's made up of, it's like a piano keyboard. You can hit any key you want, but you can't hit between them. Follow me? There's an indivisible aspect to it. Now that's exactly, that's why they call it quantum. Whether it's energy, mass, length, energy, it, it, they're, they're made of indivisible units. Okay, so let's get back to this map of, on the big side, we have finite, uh, experience, it's finite large-wise. On the smallness, we discover, it's also made up of indivisible units. There are two concepts in the universe that we can represent mathematically, but we can't find physically. One of those is infinity. You can't find things that are infinitely large because the universe is finite. You also can't get things that are infinitely small because be below the quantum, they don't, have, they don't have locality. Okay? Now, so it's, what it means is, this universe that we experience has, it has finite limits. We find ourselves as participants in a digital simulation. This thing feels solid because the electrical fields of the atoms in my hand are colliding with the electrical fields of the atoms that make up the podium. But they're mostly empty space. What do you mean mostly? Well, the ratio of 30 million years to one second is the ratio, nominally, okay? And this is caused in Scientific American, January, uh, uh, June, excuse me, June of 2005, there's an article in which they conclude, for a number of reasons, that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. No kidding. That's what the Bible has said all along, okay? Now, this, is the, this leads us to the verse that I quoted earlier, but I, I'll, I'll put it out here more clearly. In 1 John 3, 2, we have, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. That's a physics statement. That means that whatever dimensionality he enjoys, we also will share. We're not going to see an N minus 1 representation of an N-dimensional being. We're not going to see a two-dimensional photograph of a three-dimensional person or a four-dimensional representation of a five. Now, whatever it is, we're going to enjoy the same dimensionality. That's staggering. That verse is staggering in its implications. But uh, 
We shall see him as he is. Strange thing for John to be moved to reveal to us. Getting back to Colossians, I thought you, you probably thought we'd never make it. <laughs> for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be. And then we have these Greek terms for angels, uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Wow, okay. Thrones, dominions, principalities. That's the, the, these refer to hierarchy of angelic beings that the Gnostics wanted to worship. And uh, by him and for him. Three prepositions, by, for, and through, are used to refute the philosophy of the false teachers. He is the heir of all things. We are the house guests of somebody else's universe. And he's the guy. He's the man. He's the king. Don't get confused on that subject. History is headed somewhere, and we all have an accountability. And we're going to explore that before this is all over here. Created by him and for him. And by the way, disbelief or denial is no refuge. We all have an appointment with destiny. And as biblical Christians, we love to talk about the rapture. And one of the test questions is, what's the first thing that happens after the rapture in heaven? Not on the earth. On here, we always make a little chart. There's the rapture, and then there's that little interval, and then there's the 70th week of Daniel, and then the abomination. We go through, make our little charts. On the earth, great. Okay, good, good. We're not going to be on the earth. What's going to happen to us? We're up there. What's the first thing that happens up there? Uh-oh. Thing called the Bema Seat. What's that all about? Well, we're going to get to that as we go here. Okay. Prepositional power. Let's stay with us for a minute. For centuries, the Greek philosophers had taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. A beginning, an application, and the end. That was their model. The primary cause is the plan, the instrumental cause is the power, and the final cause is the purpose. That was, you know, if you're a preacher, you always like to be more comfortable when things all have the same letter. Somehow, if it's plan, power, and purpose, it's all P, it must be true, see. So. When it comes to creation, Jesus Christ is the primary cause because he planned it. He's the instrumental cause because he produced it. And he's the final cause because he did it for himself, for his own pleasure. Wow, I love that. Now, this passage is parallel to the term logos. I'm fascinated the word logos, the word in Greek, it fascinates me that we now discover in every field of science, the queen of the sciences is the information sciences. Is the information science. Even biology. The issue in biology isn't the traditional atom thing. It's the coding of the DNA, right? It's interesting when everything is reduced to information. And the ultimate title of Christ is the Word, with a capital W. Or capital L, lambda, I should say, with the logos. But... Okay, and so it's interesting that in John chapter 1, the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, you know, that's a title that John uses that title of Christ frequently. It's one of the reasons I think that many people believe that the gospel of John was written after the book of Revelation, after Patmos. That's a surprise. But also in Hebrews, the opening verses of Hebrews, same thing. And also in Philippians 2, the kenosis. But they all, all these writers give the high conception of the person of Christ, both Son of God and Son of Man, both. Don't diminish, diminish either one. And the central activity of Christ in the work of creation is presented also in John 3 as a complete denial 
of the Gnostic philosophy, obviously. Continuing Colossians, we made, a, we made two verses so far. We're doing great here. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now this little word consist is a, a troublesome little word because it, it doesn't carry, the translation doesn't carry the real impact. Synestemi. It means to be compacted together, to cohere, to be constituted with, to be held together. Christ did not only create the universe, he dynamically is holding it together. He didn't just build it, he's sustaining it. And the day is coming where he's going to let go. Whew, what does that mean? There, see, there are four basic forces in physics that we've discovered. Gravity, of course, that's what keeps our feet on the ground, the Earth in its orbit, the galaxies in their places. Gravity, there's a lot we don't understand about it, but we certainly experience it and can measure it and so on. Electromagnetic, radio waves, light, as well as the molecules of chemistry depend on the electromagnetic forces. There's a, as you get smaller and smaller from the cosmic gravity down through electromagnetic, you get down to molecules and atoms, there are two nuclear forces. There's a strong nuclear force that holds the atom together, and then there is a weak nuclear force that is trying to, that creates the, the radioactivity and the heat of the sun and that sort of thing. Okay. Now, the first two decrease in strength inversely with the square of the distance between the two objects. You put it twice as far away, it's four, four times weaker, kind of thing. It's a square law kind of thing. And that's true of gravity, and it's true of, of the electromagnetic. Uh, the, the last two act only in very, very short ranges. The nucleus of every atom is held together by what physics call, physics call the weak and the strong nuclear forces. They don't have any more imaginative names for those, but that's what they call them. And the nucleus of the atom contains positively charged and neutral particles to use a very simplistic model. And a mutual electrostatic repulsion between the positrons would drive a nucleus apart if it were not for the strong nuclear part, which is binding it together. So to give you a model here, if you have two things that are a positive and a negative, they attract each other. We've all experienced that in a, very, a number of ways. And uh, if two are the same, they repel each other, right? And if they're negative, they re in other words, if they're identical, they repel. If they're different, they attract. Okay. So we have an atom that's mixed with, with, surrounded by electrons in our classical conception of this. And in the nucleus, you've got neutral ones and you've got positive ones all bound together. What should they be doing? Expanding. What's holding them together? That which we call the strong nuclear force. Okay, cool. What happens when you release that? Boom. The day is coming from the scripture that Christ is going to let go. And, and interestingly enough, there are several that talk about it. Let's talk a little bit further about the energy in space. We, think, we always think space is empty. Are there any radio hams here? If you have an, a transmitter, you've got to tune it to the impedance of space. Space has impedance. That means it's got inductance reactance. It's not empty. It has electrical properties. There is an active force imposed upon the universe which actively holds the very atoms of the material world together moment by moment, day by day, century by century. Similarly, the electrons circulating the nucleus would quickly spin, either lose energy and collapse in center or what keeps them in their, in their orbits. And uh, they would fall into the nucleus unless there exists an invisible energy force to counteract this. 
And this would appear to correlate with what they call zero-point energy, the energy of empty, so-called empty space. And the atoms appear to behave like perpetual motion machines, uh, picking up energy from the background zero-point energy and are thus sustained by it. Dr. Barry Sutterfield, who incidentally is a committed Christian, good friend, he's estimated that the rate of the, which this outside energy from the vacuum of empty space would have to be fed into the universe is a staggering over 1 times 10 to the 117th kilowatts per square meter per second. That's a gigantic form of energy. Per uh, you know per cubic meat per second, and uh, there are other New Testament passages which deal with the destiny of atomic structure in physics. Hebrews chapter one, two verses. We'll take a quick look at, and Second Peter three, a few verses. Let's take a look at the Hebrews passage. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. By whom? Who is he talking about? Jesus, of course. The word worlds here is aeonis, which means, it's in the plural, it means time domains, actually. Some Bibles translate that ages, but it's generally regarded by scholars to mean the entire universe. And Jesus, of course, is the creator. That's the context of this passage. But continuing, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Interesting phrase, expressed image of his person. And that the word there, interestingly enough, is character in the Greek. Okay, uh, It's an, like an impressed character, like an engraving. And uh, all the prophets and all the writings up until now have all been but shadows and hints at the aspects of Jesus Christ. And that's developed in subsequent passages as, as we've just seen in Colossians 2. But upholding all things by the word of his power... And uh, this enumerates the three facts in the same order as before. The word for upholding is the very same word in the Septuagint translation that you, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in which it speaks of the Spirit of God moving on the face of the water. In the second verse of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Seven words, 24 letters. If you understand that verse, everything falls into place. Second verse. But the earth had become without form and void and darkness faced on the deep. That's the gap thing. But anyway, third verse, but the Spirit of God brooded, moved upon the face of the waters. And it's the same word that's used here in terms of this upholding the word of His power. And uh, when He had by Himself purged our sins, and the Greek aorist participle here is, means there, it, 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 there it's completed. It is done. When he had by himself purged, it's past tense, done once and for all. Very important Greek structure here. And that's what we're going to explore to tell us die before this is all through. So the Son is the final revealer. He's the heir of all things. Through the Son the ages were made. He's the brightness of God's glory. He's the image of the Father. He upholds all things by His power. He made purification of sin, sat down, majesty. All this is in those few verses in the Epistle of Hebrews. Let's shift and see what Peter has to say about this. He's even more articulate on the subject. He says, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting about verse 6, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. He's talking about Noah, presumably, right? Okay. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, kept, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He's making an explicit prediction. The next time it's going to be destroyed, it isn't by water, it's by fire. But a strange kind of fire. By fire. 
Next time by fire. And that's all through the scripture, by the way. P Peter's just summarizing a handful of uh, passages from Isaiah, Daniel, elsewhere. By him are all the very elements held together. Now, but this also implies God's sovereignty over time. He has a perspective, a priority, what have you, that we lack. He has his own agenda. But Peter goes on, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How many have heard that verse before? Do you ever realize that's a refutation of Calvinism? This is one of the examples of this. Not willing that any should perish. The great tragedy is that after the entire panorama of redemption, God doesn't get what he wants. One of the disturbing conclusions you come to is that out of the whole extremes that God has gone to on our behalf, he doesn't get what he wants out of the deal. He's not willing that any should perish, but many will be. Interesting. Not all will repent. And time is our most inelastic resource. Everything else can be replaced. You can't replace time. The minute that just went by is gone forever. It's very inelastic. Scripture says, teach us to number our nanoseconds, right? Nanoseconds is a missile translation, but okay. <laughs> but Peter continues, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away. Wow, with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The day of the Lord... And that's when he's going to bring him, his people with him. That's defined. The trigger of that's defined in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And it's going to come as a thief of night to those who are in darkness. But you're not in darkness. You're not of the night, but of the day. And he explains that in the chapter that follows chapter, uh, chapter 4 of Thessalonians. And Isaiah also amplifies, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. This is To, to create the new one, you've got to get rid of the old one. That's what's going on here. In the which, see, the day of the Lord starts with the second coming in power, and it goes until the, uh, uh, this destruction. The day of the Lord closed at the end of the millennium when the destruction of the heavens and the earth in Revelation 20 and 21 detail that. They shall pass away with a great noise. That's not really quite what it says. The word is residon, which is a word used for the swish of an arrow, the rush of wings the splash of water, the hiss of a serpent. It's translated great noise, but that's a little misleading. It's not a big bang. It's something even subtler, perhaps. And the elements, and the word there is uh, stokia, which is uh, the basic building blocks. Elements is a good translation. Uh, shall melt with a fervent heat. The word melt, by the way, is to untie or loose. See, that's the, this all comes out of the consist of... of, of um, Colossians. But then Peter continues, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And conversation, of course, in the Old English is behavior. We use the term a little differently, and that's one of those things about the King James. There's about, there's four or five of these words you have to relearn, not a big deal, but holy behavior, if you will, and godliness. Ought ye to be. How shall then, how, how then shall we live? Do the realities of all of this impact our priorities? Probably not. It's sort of academic. Is the world really going to come to an end? Yes. And it's going to impact everybody. 
looking for and hastening unto the coming of the, of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, Peter asks. And uh, by the way, you can hasten this. Did you know that? You can hasten this. In the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's talking about a kingdom. And where is that kingdom? It says so in the prayer. On earth. Not in the heavenlies. Not some kind of fuzzy, fuzzy, running around, floating on clouds, playing a harp. Those idioms are obviously childish. It's all going to help bring in the fullness. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So devoutly to be wished. And the world number three. First world was destroyed prior to Genesis chapter 2, apparently. And the second one we're observing. And the third one is forthcoming, presumably. And this one will have righteousness dwelling in it. What puzzles me is if God can create the universe in six days, why does it take Christ a thousand years to get it presentable to give to the Father? Ooh. That's another study for another time, but I thought it'd keep it stirred up here a little bit. Um, God dynamically sustains the universe, including the very atoms themselves. That's what the scripture's telling us here. Atoms, it seems, are stable only because the force and energy are being supplied into their nuclear binding fields from outside the system. That's a shock. That's why these things, the electrons don't slow down. You'd think they would, wouldn't you? God is not only the creator of the universe, he's the sustainer of the universe. He's not uninvolved, remote or detached or impersonal, leaving things to run for themselves. No, no, no. He's very actively required. He energizes all things according to the counsel of his own will. He cares about the sparrow that falls to the ground, and the widow, and the orphan, and the homeless, and you. He cares. That's astonishing. That's, that's almost impossible to get your mind around. That he cares individually for each of us. That's mind-blowing. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 